Welcome to Keep Them Coming with Open the Doors Coaching. I'm your host, Kristen Thomas. I'm a certified sex coach and clinical sexologist based in Kansas City. And I just love to talk to people about what goes on in their sex lives and relationships. I also enjoy good conversation about love, heartache, activism, or making change in the world. Be warned, you should probably be 18 and over and probably listening on your headphones. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, so it has been a month since I released a podcast and uh, I caught COVID. Basically, as soon as I published that last episode, like two days later, I started feeling like crap. So it's taken a little while for my voice to recover, a little bit for my energy to recover. Here I am. I'm back. In fact, as I'm recording this introduction, I have already recorded three new episodes. So I just needed to let my voice rest and you know, when you can't stop coughing, it's kind of hard to record a podcast. So I'm still a little stuffy. I'll, I might sniffle a few times. Sorry. I edit when I can. The conversation you are about to listen to between me and my guest, D. Rashawn Gilmore, is maybe not going to make some of you very happy. Sorry, not sorry. I don't really care. We live in Missouri and we no longer have the time to mince words. Our conversation covered topics like houselessness, classism, voter apathy, and allyship. We also talked about proximity to power and how white women helped get Trump elected and still even voted for him the second time around. And I have been doing some heavy thinking and it made me realize that even though conversations with white women that don't think like me do stress me out and it's led me to disengage from them, that's also a very privileged position. So... There are probably some women in my life that I could re-engage in conversations in maybe a different way than I have in the past. I don't need to be as combative as I have in the past. I think that time and wisdom has given me the ability to maybe ask them more questions and um, stay more level-headed when they say something out of pocket. Racist, sexist, classist, whatever. Internalized misogyny, all that stuff. I think you'll understand what I'm talking about once you listen to this conversation. But since our conversation was so uh, winding, I mean, we just basically hit the ground running as soon as we hit record. I am going to read his bio and also tell you a little bit more about the organization he founded. Dee Rashawn is a serial entrepreneur, community connector, organizer, collaborator, and an Emmy Award winner. He is particularly passionate about making a difference and has found a home for his voice in service of marginalized and stigmatized communities. He is the founder and CEO of Blackout, a grassroots movement organization that seeks to organize and mobilize the black LGBTQ community in Kansas City and develop a leadership core. Dee Rashawn has been working in HIV prevention for a very long time and was also honored as being a recipient of the 2020 Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Equity Award. He's a political analyst. He's been a commentator on radio and television. You can currently catch him as a host and moderator of Flatland, which is a live broadcast TV show here in Kansas City on our local PBS station. His essays and op-eds on how race, gender, sexuality, and ability intersect and impact culture can also soon be found in Newsweek, where he will be a contributing writer. Now, this organization, Blackout, has a mission to bring about a community where black queer people in the greater Kansas City metropolitan area are connected and supported and have access to safe places and sufficient resources to help them thrive. Blackout is a community of individual advocates, community activists, and healthcare professionals who work to address the psychosocial and environmental challenges faced by black queer people living in our area. Blackout believes that to turn the tide against the HIV AIDS epidemic and improve overall health outcomes, that means that grassroots and indigenously led efforts originating from those most affected must be given the opportunity to succeed. Their approach aims to look at all aspects of the lives of black queer people, but they also make a conscious effort to not have a singular focus on HIV and AIDS. Blackout is creating new pathways for their membership to enjoy a sense of community, experience healing, and feel celebrated, nurtured, heard, and seen. 
it's April, so that means my new column is out on newsstands. Since it's the 420 issue, of course, I wrote about sex and cannabis. You can find my column Blurred Lines there in the back. I talked about consent and cannabis. There's a lot of people out there who have never used cannabis products in their life, and since Recreational just opened up in Missouri, there's a lot more people out there trying it. If you're not local and can't go grab it on newsstands, there's two things you might consider. One, just wait it out until the 22nd, which is when my editor said it will be available online. Or consider becoming a member of The Pitch. For as little as $5 a month, you could get The Pitch delivered directly to your house, no matter where you live. Check the show notes. There's a link for you to click there if you would like to become a sustaining member of The Pitch. No more waiting for the digital version. All right, I think that sums it up. Enjoy the show. Well, I'm honored today to have a a local activist and someone I have followed for a while. D. Rashawn Gilmore is joining me on Keep Them Coming. Thank you so much for being here today. It is a real pleasure to be joining you for this conversation today, Kristen. I'm sure it's going to go all over the place and I'm ready for it. That's the best kind of best part about these episodes is some of my friends come up to me and say, I listened to your last episode. It was like all over the place, but that's the best kind of shows. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, by the way. Absolutely. It's my honor. Um, My friend Joel said that I should uh, reach out to you. And I was like, you know what? They've been on my radar for a while. So it's time. It's time. Well, I love Joel Barrett, so it's not surprising to me at all to discover that uh, we have him as a mutual friend. He's just an exceptional human being and a terrific gift to Kansas City. Definitely a connector. When he says that in his, you know, uh, elevator yeah, pitch, he means it. <laughs> it's accurate. Well, if you would take a moment and tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself. Uh, I'm a Kansas City native, and, you know, I come to the current work, this is my 10th year in the HIV field, and so I sort of wear a couple of different hats. One is as the uh, founder and CEO of Blackout. Blackout is a Kansas City, Missouri-based nonprofit organization that is really focused on two core things. One is providing um, access to healthcare for the black LGBT community and advancing their healthcare needs and outcomes. And the second piece of that is really making sure that we have place and space to gather And I've often said that one of Kansas City's most persistent unmet needs is a gathering space for the black LGBT community that is both social and uh, clinical, medical, and a variety of other things. And so Blackout is actively and deeply engaged in that work right now and uh, made a significant step in that direction last fall when we purchased a building in Midtown to house all of those things. The other role that I play is as the host of Flatland and Focus, which is part of Kansas City PBS's uh, digital platform. And so the show airs once a month on Kansas City PBS. And we really do dive into issues that people are talking about or maybe should be talking about. And uh, I think between those two things, my life is more than a little full. Well, I see your Emmy sitting back there behind you. Congratulations on that. Yes. uh, You know, as with most things, it's never one person who does all of the things. It's certainly a team effort, but as a first-time television host and moderator, it was quite a surprise to me to even be nominated, and I felt like I'd already won because to be nominated was, you know, you go the rest of your life, the Emmy-nominated host of or the Emmy-nominated whatever, uh, but to have actually won was a very big deal, and so it is, you know, due to the work of myself, but also all of our colleagues and crew at Kansas City PBS, and it was for an episode that we did on houselessness in Kansas City and uh, the work that so many great activists around the city were doing to sort of address those concerns. So, yeah, yeah. this is my first Emmy. That's how I've, I've, I've taken to saying that now. So I if love I should ever. That. I love you know, She's that. lonely here by herself. She, she wants some company. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I'm, I'm sure that you have a tie between the work that you're doing through Blackout and some of the work that you're doing for the queer community and houselessness because so many queer youth in our city have experienced houselessness in their lifetimes, especially when they're first coming out, especially for, for trans women. True enough. And, I, you know, I, I will say that 
you know, while there wasn't that sort of direct connect that one might assume with the issues as you just described them, even though you're absolutely right, it always is at the forefront of my mind that we live in a time when it's not as easy as everybody thinks it is to come out. Mm -hmm. And I have so many queer friends and I have so many allies who are friends who say, oh, just come out. It's not the same as it was before. But it's not true for a great many people across a really broad age spectrum. It's still not safe to come out because safety in that context means that you may lose your housing, you may lose your connections to church or spiritual community, family and friends. And so houselessness is a really huge issue. You know, there's a, I'll quote that great Missouri humorist, Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, who said that um, there are three kinds of lies, he said, lies, damn lies, and stats. But there's one stat that really stands out, which is that 40% of all homeless youth in this country are identifying as members of the LGBT community. And so even if they're not kicked out, they may be forced out or they may not be in environments that are safe. Mm -hmm. And I'm just really passionate about it because there is a need that we have to meet and we're just not, just not quite there yet. No, we are not. The city has uh, put forth a plan to help reduce houselessness with a goal of zero. Um, have you had a look at the plan? You know, it is a very ambitious plan, and I think that there's a lot to um, celebrate about it, but there are some obvious gaps and some obvious holes. And so I just, I wonder if the interest and the financial support will be sustained over a long enough period of time to really remediate and address this concern. I am cautiously optimistic, um, but I think that as long as people who are on the ground, who are leading in this issue and, and who have been for years, as long as they are at the forefront, those who are experiencing houselessness are at the forefront, it has a much better chance of surviving and actually thriving. But I love to quote Ayanna Presley, a congresswoman from Massachusetts, who says this all the time, that those closest to the pain should be closest to the power. And so if it's one of those top-down solutions, it's not going to work, it's not going to last, and it's ultimately just going to be window dressing on an issue that is very ugly and that people want to always sort of push to the background, and we have to do a better job. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. I live in the historic Northeast, so you know I, I see the houselessness a lot. I see you know, a lot of the community issues uh, that are being talked about you know, in real time. I mean, we're at Columbus Park, so we're not far from you. are just on the other end of, of Independence Avenue from where you are right now. And you're right, we see it all the time. It's a very real issue. But can I just say that it's not a political issue. Nothing. It may require political solutions. The issue is not even a moral issue. It's a human issue. And what I mean by that is we have this thing as a country, as a country, where we moralize people's uh, houselessness. We moralize people's difficulty or poverty. Mm -hmm. And if you are houseless or unhoused or homeless, whatever term you prefer, then you did something wrong. But I came across something the other day that really just blew my mind, that 30% of unhoused people are actually working full-time jobs. Sit with that for a moment. So we're not talking about people who are lazy. We're not talking about people who don't want to work or who we're just want to be on the government dime or dull. Yeah, I mean, that's not what it is. Yeah. It's that we have an economy and a society that's set up where you cannot live by working a living wage, a so-called living wage, and some who don't even have access to that. So anyway, it's just, it's very frustrating to me that we're, we're so far from it, but it's not about you know, people who don't care for themselves or don't, that's not what it is. And we can't do this thing anymore in this country of wanting to just hide the unhoused. Correct. As long as we don't see them all as well. We don't care about it. And this is a broad brushstroke, I understand. But generally, collectively as a society, we don't care about them until we see them. Mm -hmm. We don't care about them until they're in our way, in front of our stores, mm -hmm. in our neighborhoods. And then it's all a big issue. We've got to change how we view ourselves, not how we view them. Absolutely. Absolutely. When we have 16 million empty homes in this country and well, you know, I places I love to visit like Seattle. Mm -hmm. I mean, Seattle's got a huge, just like every major metropolitan city in this country and even many smaller communities of, of people needing housing. But what always throws me off is we want to do everything, but give them housing. Mm -hmm. And so you think about the housing inventory, like you just mentioned, how we could address it. But the, the issue becomes one where we feel like people who got themselves in a bad situation 
who made bad decisions, who have mental health issues, or they have substance use issues, or whatever. These bad people now want me to give them housing, or yeah. now they want another gift, and that's just not it at all. But these narratives yeah. that that have been used to construct our viewpoints on these issues, and we see it across a range of topics. I won't even go right. into it, but oh it's, no, we are going to go into the topics. Oh, well, right, right. And, well, I think it's very punitive, right? It's very either you didn't do enough or you did something, and these are your consequences. And I think that's that right. a lot of people view the unhoused, houselessness, all that, the same as they view people who have uh, things like HIV and AIDS. Well, and the, the stigma around some of these issues is really the worst part of all. And I, I would just tell you, Kristen, that one of the things I committed myself to very early on in my work in the HIV field, um, particularly even as a person who's not living with HIV, is that I just determined that my work would be centered on empowering those who are stigmatized versus trying to educate those who are the stigmatizers. Now, there may be people who are out there doing that work. God bless them. That's not my work. Similarly, around issues of race, I talk a lot about race and racism. Uh, I wish that I didn't have to, but alas, we do. Yeah. We do. We do. <laughs> right? But I've often said that I'm just no longer interested in trying to educate people because you know why? You know why? We live in a world and in a time when all of human knowledge ever is available at your fingertips. It's called mm -hmm. Google. And I'm just not going to continue to invest my time uh, in trying to educate people in that way. Now, if you get something here or there, then good for you. But I remember distinctly several years ago, Project Equality uh, was doing a forum at UMKC. And I was invited to be on a panel, and I was there with my colleague and friend, Micah Kubik, who used to run ACLU here in town, and uh, several others. I think Catherine Evans was part of that panel, and then you had, with Rudy Strategy, who's also a very, very dear friend, and then you had um, Tim Wise, the great, you know, uh, activist. Um, he talks a lot of, and has written a lot about uh, anti-black racism, so on and so forth, white man from Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And at the Q&A portion, Kristen, some woman, she's a white woman, stood up and very sincerely asked the question, how do we end racism, Rashawn? And I had to suppress my indignation and near rage at that question. And now your viewers might be watching and wondering, well, well yeah, great question. Why would you be mad about that question? My response will tell you why I was mad about that question. My response was, how the hell should I know we didn't invent this shit? Like, I, I don't know. Why are you asking me? It's like going to a rape victim and saying, well, how do we prevent rape? What, what, why are you asking me? I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm on the other receiving end of this nonsense. Right. When you are the oppressed party, you understand a lot of the, the things that's going on for the oppressor, yeah. but you also are not responsible for having the solutions for how to stop the oppression. No. And I just don't. Again, it goes back to the talk about HIV and HIV stigma houselessness and stigma associated with that, mental health stigma. I feel like my work in my life is really about building up those people as best I can. Yes, it's calling out problems when they come up. Yes, it's speaking truth to power, and I've never shied away from that. But ultimately, if I had put it into a ratio, it would be like 95 to 5. I want 95% of my life, my work, and my time, my words to be focused on building up those people and helping them to navigate in the ways that they need assistance versus trying to tell somebody else why what they're doing is wrong when 10 times out of 10, they already know it. What you touched on there, I think, is also something that is an eternal struggle for people that are in a space of activism is there's the two fronts, right? You, the front mm -hmm. of you are either taking care of the, the people who are being affected by stigma and by the way our society is not functioning right now or you're trying to fight against it and the people who are trying to fight against it as you say like bless them for doing that work but they also really talk in a behind the curtain about how hard that work is how hard yeah, it absolutely. is to be that person in that position that you're constantly in battle mode and that mind brain body connection when you're constantly yeah, in fight yeah. mode it affects you and, and it wears you down. It does wear you down. Um, and quite, quite significantly. It's hard to do that work long term. So, well, I, I tell people all the time it's, you know, when I, particularly Chris, when I talk about racism, mm -hmm. it is so pervasive and so prevalent 
despite the gains we've made over the last 40, 50 years, let's say, it is almost like trying to get a fish to see water. And if it is all you know, then you don't understand when people talk to you about currents or you don't understand when people talk to you about like, this is what my experience is because it's like, no, this is just the way of the world. Like, what are you talking about? Why are you raising an issue? Mm -hmm. It's not until you get that fish out of the water that they begin to see a difference. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where many of us are trying to process our experiences. And I really hope for any of the other activists that you have on your show, now you've had many, and I don't consider myself an activist. I just consider myself as a, a dude who cares about the shit he cares about. And I have to speak up about it. You I have to do something that. about it. You all say well, we're probably also very unnecessarily and, and to some extent probably falsely self-deprecating, but I really do mean that because it's not like activism is not something you apply for. I don't even think it's something you set out to do. I think there is an issue or a cause that resonates with your soul, and either you answer that call or you don't. And in the areas of my life where I have been active it's because I have answered that call. Something on a level has resonated with me and I felt like I could not, not, bad grammar, but a good point. I could not, not speak to it, address it, try to make it better. I feel that. And that's how I, I think I kind of got called into things starting in college with being on a large university campus and seeing the horrible posters that the pro-life people mm. would put up and you know, yelling back at them, yeah. seeing the anti-LGBT rhetoric and having the Westboro Baptist Church on campus multiple times a year and, you know, fighting back against that. And I went in as a Baptist girl whose, you know, dad said, have fun with the young Republicans to, oh, yeah, wow. to exiting <laughs> very much that, you know, kind of person that my dad said, college ruined you college turned you into this liberal feminist and my dad was Rush Limbaugh's biggest fan and loved the term feminazi um so I have I have oh, enjoyed wow. my switch into becoming something that's the absolute antithesis of what my father thought I was gonna be well I have to say Kristen that I can relate um little little known facts about my background um so I was born and raised into a very interesting sort of family dynamic. And I should say that I'm very close to my family, uh, love them all very dearly. But my mom and my dad have an interesting story, and I'll, I'll try to make this somewhat brief, if not brief, then succinct at least, so you can follow it, but or cogent. But my mom and dad, my mom's family, my grandparents in the 70s uh, became, you know, sort of, black nationalists and Muslims, if you know, and very much people of faith, mm -hmm. but they had had a Baptist sort of upbringing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so on my dad's side, Catholic, everybody. I mean, Catholic schools are all, edu all their education. I mean, until my dad went to HBCU, but like everything Catholic, Catholic, Catholic. So you have my mom, who was this previously unchurched person whose parents have become black Muslims uh, become Muslims, and then you got my dad, Catholic, but they come together and they have uh, four beautiful children, of which I am the best, brightest, most attractive, most my, my siblings know. It's, it's, it's a known quantity in the family. Um, don't tell them that, though. Um, but I mentioned all that to say there was a period of time when my parents, who were married at that point for 11 years, separated and divorced, mm -hmm. uh, but then they remarried, and they've been remarried to each other for nearly 40 years now. And I mentioned all of that to say this, it was the role of faith that played a significant part in their coming back together and in, in, in really who they are today. Mm -hmm. I, as a teenager was like, well, I don't know anything about this whole Christian thing, right? It was new, my mom became a born again, spirit filled, tongue talking, evangelical mm -hmm. Christian. Mm -hmm. My dad soon followed, they remarried, they've been together, that's who we are, they are. But here's the point. At that time, I was also coming to grips with who I was as an individual mm -hmm. and trying to understand my own personhood and spirituality and sexuality. And so I went to Bible school. Oh. I went to, yes, um, which is where, by the way, I had my first, met my first gay lover. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Okay, right? no, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Knowing what I know now. Exactly. Nobody would be surprised. Knowing what I know now. <laughs> 
Exactly, right? <laughs> and so I mentioned all of that because it was quite a struggle to figure out who I was in the midst of all of that. And so I can relate to what you're saying, like your dad sending you off to college and he's just like, okay, well, enjoy those young Republicans. But you're like, I'm looking around and I see none of this reflects the values that I have and hold dear as an individual. Yeah. Yeah. And so even though I consider myself a spiritual person, I'm just not a big fan at all of organized religion. Um, but I do think of myself as a very spiritual person though. That's how I am as well. Um, my minor was political science, but I was just shy of doing a religious studies minor as well. I, just, mm. I didn't finish it because I would have had to go back and take an econ course. So I just audited my last course and enjoyed my, my time in it. But um, it was actually because of 9-11 that I really mm. started to wake up to the systemic racism and then realize, oh, and, and yes, it is still going on for black people too. Curious, what, what about 9-11? And I know I'm the interviewee, not the interviewer, so I'm trying to make sure I stay in my right seat. But I'm just curious, what was it about 9-11 specifically? What did you see, feel, or experience that was the wake-up call for you? It was watching the fear on my fellow students' face, just walking into a classroom that were wearing hijabs or were obviously Muslim. And I never saw anyone actually say anything rude. I never saw anyone throw anything at a student, but I believed them when they told me those stories. Mm -hmm. I believed yeah. them, you know, when I saw the increased security around the mosque, which I worked and lived down the street from. Um, and, you know, they had been in my classes before that, but the semester after 9-11, I took my intro to Islam class and it was like 50-50 white students and Muslim students. Wow. And I learned so much about it and was so immersed in that class with so many people who I already knew, but got to know them on a di different level. And it was that point in time where I recognized that I, it doesn't matter if I've seen it or I've experienced it with yeah. them. I just have to believe them. Yeah. So. Certainly not made up. That's for sure. And I, I you know, I, I remember during that time, you know, my grandmother, was going to do Hajj for the first time and her pilgrimage to Mecca and she wanted to go with my grandfather but he had just passed away mm -hmm. um, and so she went and this is immediately after like 9-11 mm -hmm. and I just remember the fear that gripped my heart and others in my family because you know is she going to be safe just traveling mm -hmm. you know just just traveling in this country yeah you weren't worried about yes, the rest of the world there. Yeah. you weren't worried about here yeah. exactly just to get exactly yeah. And some of those fears and realities still persist to this day. Absolutely. Um, I think that's the thing. When they're when they're in their bubbles, they cannot fathom that they could be wrong. Another instance I oh. had, I was in Vegas. I was traveling a lot internationally for a job that I had. And I was talking about going like, oh, I'm going to be, I went to Haiti. I've gone to South Africa. I'm going to India in a couple of months. And the dealer said, mm. um, I mean, like, aren't you like worried about doing this much travel? And this was 2015 into 16. Oh, into 17, I think as well. I think it was 2016 when I was actually sitting at that table and I was like afraid of what she's like, I don't know, like terrorists. And I leaned in and I said, I am much more likely to get murdered by a white Christian man with a gun in this country than I am anywhere else in the world by a brown terrorist or by a black man. Right. But, but, but that doesn't fit the narrative. You know, that, that would cause me to experience so much cognitive dissonance that my brain might explode. I watched And that's her why we see. Exactly. <laughs> she glitched. And that whole table was like, oh. It got real quiet. I, you know, I, I, Kristen, I don't know if, well, I don't have to say I don't know. I think the evidence is before us, and it is plain, that we do not live in a country. I'm not talking about a the broader society or you know the world in this country we are still not ready to come face to face with a lot of very uncomfortable and unpleasant truths about who we are as a country and we see this continue to play out i don't think donald trump is any sort of anomaly i get why they like him i get it i don't like it and i don't like him but i get it right he is, in their minds, it would seem, the best personification 
of all of the things that they hold dear and true about their own identities and about their place in society. And any shift in that paradigm is enough to cause the whole thing to fracture and collapse, and they just cannot abide that. White supremacy must uphold itself at all costs. Anything that threatens it, anything, including feminism and women's rights, including anything for folk who are LG, anything of the, of the other, the further you get out from that central circle of white, cisgender, heterosexual, evangelical, Christian man, like that, that thing, any, the, the further you other yourself away from that, the more of a threat you are viewed as, and they just cannot abide it, and they will fight for it at all costs, including going against everything they said they believed to be true in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And in their the Bible. Declaration of Independence, in the Bill of Rights, in the Bible, because at all costs, and you think about the, this binary of evangelical Christianist uh, beliefs and capitalism. I mean, you cannot, well, let me put it this way, and this is for any group, anytime that you have to have God be in your image, not as human, we take a Palestinian Jew. From 2,000 years ago and make him a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Does does nobody see this as nuts? It's crazy. But it has to be that because then that reaffirms who I say and who I believe and who I think I am, Mm -hmm. my place in in global hierarchy and in human hierarchy. So it has to be that way. Otherwise, who am I? Am I just like everybody else? Am I not better than everybody else? And so it's that sort of cognitive dissonance that really has these people fucked up in the head, quite frankly. It's time for a quick break. I promise it'll just be a minute, so stay tuned. I'll be right back after a few words that help me get paid. It's the entitlement of it all in there, too. Like, this idea of there has to be someone that deserves things because of the way that they believe their, their systems of deservedness of how hard you yeah. work, this individualization. We good, you bad. Yep. Yep. So if they recognize that there's nothing that actually makes them special enough to deserve what they have, there then how go. can they prevent others from having what they have? They can't. That's exactly yes. why they have to uphold it. But you know, Dr. King once said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And tomorrow's my birthday, uh, my annual 30th birthday. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. And I'm so grateful that the arc of the moral universe has bent its way toward a Manhattan criminal court tomorrow. And the only thing I want, my my birthday gift, (laughs) Kristen, will be a mugshot. That is my birthday gift. And I just wish all of us should be Yes. What a gift. What a gift. And I and I get it. Some are saying, well, it's not the strongest. I don't care. At this point, anything that is any semblance of accountability, I will take it. And I think it's just the first domino. Can we please also hope that Manhattan is just the first domino and that Georgia is next? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I need Jack Smith to get on the stick too. I want this off. Because here's the thing. We already see, Kristen, take January 6th. The effort that is going in to complete before our very eyes. It's not like, oh, we want to change history. Before our very eyes, the effort to literally and figuratively whitewash. That whole experience, mm-hmm. right now, today, we have to continue fighting back. And I think that this accountability is a big part of that. I think for, the, you know, for at least for one day, when that mugshot, if it is to be taken, and I believe it will be, uh, I just think all of social media should just, that's going to be my avatar. That's my, all my contact pics, everything. Everything is going to be that picture for at least one day. And I hope, <laughs> I hope. He either looks like there's that I don't know if you've seen that there's a mugshot of James Brown getting when he got a he looked like he had like a monkey on his head or his hair is all over the place or Nick Nolte oh gosh similarly. yeah yeah 
I, I want that. It may not be that, but I want that. But I'll just take any little, if he's just there holding up his, I'll, I'll just take You it. know what I want to see? I want to see the smudges from his tears and his orange makeup. <laughs> That's what I want. On my, on my former radio show, Unbossed and Unbothered, I've tried often as much as I could to never say his name. And he was just referred to as the orange turd blossom. And so um, I would love to see him streaming through with tears through the, is that makeup or is that like his tan color? I don't even know I how that works. I think it's makeup. I think that it's like, like a warmth kind of powder or something that he's got on, or it's foundation or something. Cause the, the lines that he's had, and plus like sometimes it's not done well up there. You see that running around his eyes? Yeah, yeah. So, mm, it's something. Anyway. Ooh, what a birthday gift for real. For real. Really would be. You know, you talked about something a moment ago I wanted to touch base on, which is those people who are out there trying to really tell the truth and it be the people who um, say the uncomfortable thing in the room. And I'm thinking about uh, Friday for Transgender Day of Visibility. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen all of Marie Jensen's speech that she gave, but one of the things... I did not see Marie's speech. I do know Marie. Yes. One of the things that she really called to task is, you know, last year was the first year that the city did a proclamation for Transgender Day of Visibility, which is great. They've got the LGBTQ commission. That's great. They had Admiral Rachel Levine, who is the Assistant Secretary of HHS, who's the highest ranking transgender individual, who is a, a white trans woman. Um, and the room had a lot of trans people. It probably had a lot of parents of trans people, it had a lot of allies as well, but no black trans women, no brown women, none of them. Like nobody in the room identified as black or brown and trans besides Kelly and Marik who were on stage. Mm -hmm. And Marik leaned mm -hmm. forward and she was like, Kelly, where are the girls? She said, they're in hiding. You know, I, um, you mentioned Admiral Levine. I recently met the Admiral uh, at the White House uh, about three weeks ago. And it was the first time that the, this White House or any White House had done a Black History Month uh, LGBTQI briefing. And they brought together, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 of us uh, from around the country. And I thought it would be a bit of a dog and pony show. It was not. It was not. It was actually very informative, very insightful, and they identified a number of ways in which we could be a benefit not only to the administration but to the administration in, in the, uh, with the goal of being of assistance to the people that we all serve. Having said that, however, when I met Admiral Levine and then when she later gave her talk, I will say that she was probably across all the people that we've seen from, uh, from around the administration. I mean, from every department, it was quite amazing. But she said something that I thought was really profound, and it speaks to the question that you just asked. She said something to the effect of, if we're not in the room, we're being excluded from the room. Even if there's an invitation, if the effort is not, and I don't know what effort was made, but if the effort is made and we're not still having the right people in the room, then we don't open the room. We go get those people and bring them in the room. And so to Marie's point, and I assume I know the Kelly that you're talking about, who's a sweetheart herself, we need to make sure that we stop just paying lip service to our trans siblings. Their lives are literally in jeopardy now as much as, if not more than ever. And I think sometimes we get so caught up on trying to, and by we, I don't mean me, but we get so caught up on trying to tick boxes. Mm -hmm. Yeah and be transactional, that we don't invest the time to be relational. And so if you don't have the girls in the room, I guarantee you, it's not just what Kelly said, and I think she's absolutely right, it's that you don't have the relationships to even get them in the room. Yeah. You know about their lives when it's convenient or when it's pressing, but not day to day. And I think that those relationships matter. It's just not enough anymore to say, well, we had one or two and feel like we've accomplished something. And at the local level, there's a lot of great work going on. A lot of great work going on. And yet, there's still so much further to go. And when I think about the lives of black trans people, especially black trans women, do you know what I say all the time is this. If we really cared about crime and violence in the city, 
we'd make sure this city was safe for black trans women. 100%. And what I mean by that is, if they can be safe, then that means we have gone through every barrier, every issue, every trap to make sure that they can be safe, then everybody else can yes. be safe. We've not done that because we feel like it's some special issue off over here. It's a they issue and not a we and an us issue. I'm, I don't mean to soapbox on this, but it just, it really just pisses me off because we know what to do. We just don't do it. Why should Marika even have to say we're the girls? Right, right. hundred percent. But it was necessary because they weren't in the room. Yes, it was. And I, uh, I, I was recording her because with the intent of sending her okay, the video yeah. later by text. I mean, but, uh, there were a couple of times I was having to like not scream <laughs> like, yeah, right. So that I could maintain <laughs> the integrity of the recording. But I unfortunately, well, one thing about her, she's going to call it out. She's going to yeah, call it out. Yes, so I'm, I'm glad that she I did. took her white women and accountability course, uh, in 2021. Oh, awesome. So was was happy to be in that room, was happy to pay somebody for that education. My cohort was from all over the country. Okay, so that was the nice part. There were definitely several people from Kansas City, but there were there were women from all over the country. Some had obviously done some of the work more than others. And it's not a judgment. We all, <laughs> As is always the case. We all gotta start somewhere, right? Right. right. Um, but it it has made everything so much more in the forefront for me about how to talk about racism. I mean, for one of my sayings for a few years has been, there can be no sexual liberation without racial, social, and economic justice. And I fucking mean that. Like, we have to end classism. We have to end colorism and racism. We have to end anti-LGBT bullshit. Um, and it, everything is tied together. It, it you know, there's a great expression, and I once had to, when I say use, it sounds like I was using it to weaponize. I hope I use it to illuminate a particular incident with an ally <clears throat> who felt like her, show, white woman, who felt like her showing up was the thing. And I felt like, no, that's just step one. But that quote, and I'm going to butcher it, but... I'm sure you probably know it or your viewers will find it. I can send it to you if nothing else. But it basically said, if you come to help me, then basically you're on the wrong path. But if you've come to work beside me because you understand that your liberation is tied up with mine, then we can do something. So to your point that all these things are intertwined, they are. Mm -hmm. They absolutely are. They absolutely are. And to the extent that we want to see real change, we've got to really start trying to focus on that and not keep giving cough drops for lung cancer. Because you can quiet the cough temporarily, but ultimately you need some more serious treatment. You need a transplant. You know what I'm saying? There's got to be more, but we keep wanting to just sort of nibble around the edges to just do enough, but not see real change. And I get that change is scary. I get the change can even be costly but it is so vitally necessary because who are we becoming as a human race if we don't put forth those changes? Agreed. Like I, I worry about us as just a race of, uh, as a species, yeah. who are we becoming? Well, because it, it all is tied in with environmental justice as well because who are the people that are affected most by what's going on with our environment? The poor, who is often the poor in this country, black and brown people or immigrants who have other intersecting yeah, marginalized that. identities. And you know, what's so crazy though, even poor white folk who often experience environmental injustice, not the same way I agree with you as the environmental racism and environmental injustice we see in black and brown and immigrant communities, you're absolutely right. There's a great quote um, that uh, W.B. Du Bois, um, and not even a quote, it was a, was that, I don't know where I got it from, but it was W.B. Du Bois. But he made the statement that the greatest trick ever perpetrated on poor whites and black folks is that we are each other's enemy. And I think for a lot of poor white folk who don't feel like they experience much privilege because they say, well, you know, hey, I've dealt with this too and I've, I've got a hard life too. Nobody's ever handed me anything. And, and I get that, but none of those things happen because you're white. Exactly, yeah. Which is the which is the point, right? 
And I just feel like when we talk about classism and we talk about capitalism, if we ever got to the point where we realize that we have been pitted against each other, but that our interests and our liberation are so aligned and intertwined, oh, my God, we changed this country overnight. But again, those who have the levers and hold the levers of power, that's what they fear most. And so that's why they continue to pit us against one another. Absolutely. Absolutely. My husband's going to love this episode because, like, these are the conversations. He's Arab. These are the conversations he and I have, too. Awesome. And he's um, he's a communist. I'll just say it. Like, and, you know, increasingly. Hey, right. Oh, right. Increasingly, I say that to people. I'm like, oh, cool. My mom did once say, like, don't tell your father that. Um, but if he listens to this show, he's heard me say it before. But, yeah, we have so many conversations. <laughs> so he already knows. Race and class and the shit like he went through a lot as a 14 year old in the post 9-11 world and it changed his life forever oh i can only imagine mm-hmm. and, and in fact i you know i was at a film screening last week actually moderated a q a a friend of mine a colleague from pbs had had a submission to the kansas city film festival and there was a q a afterwards and i was talking to a local philanthropist uh, someone i've known for a very long time and uh, wouldn't consider us friends, but we are friendly, and we always speak when we see each other. And so he was sharing with me that recently he was having a dinner party and had a conversation broke out about race and racism, and will we ever get there? And this is an older Jewish man. Will we ever get there? Will we ever see a day when there's, you know, the, you know, we don't see anti-Semitism and we don't see anti-blackness and all these sorts of things? And it took me a minute to get there. But I was like, I, I think it it can happen. And you know what he said to me? I don't, I don't, at least not in my lifetime. But you know what, Kristen, I fucking agree with him. I, there was a time when we thought, well, maybe if the old ones just sort of die off with their old ways and their old, no, they have not only deeply ingrained that into a younger generation, but they're doing everything they can to make sure that it, no black, uh, history books or history lessons because that might hurt white children's feelings or some shit. I, like, what the fuck? I don't understand like, that. I don't understand that because I remember in my course of my education, there were plenty of times that my fucking feelings were hurt when I read a book about how indigenous people in this country were treated. When I read about how slaves were treated. When I read about how modern gynecology began. But there were slaves at all, yeah. Of course I hurt. But that's how I came to understand so much of this experience in this country so deeply steeped in racism, classism, and the mistreatment of people and the oppression of people. I, listen, those are the foundations of this country. Yes. Now, we can try to uphold all of these aspirational values that the so-called founding fathers memorialized in writing in this country's founding documents, but the truth of the matter is more than half of those men owned human beings, Mm -hmm. owned humans. Including the one that they love to jerk off, Thomas Jefferson. Like, give me a fucking break. Who Who kept a- Even more insidious in some ways. Thank you. Let's not, let's not miss- And generations of children that he and his descendants denied for years. And I, I, but two things can be true at once. It can be true that these were men who had these aspirational values about freedom and liberty and all this. They didn't want to be oppressed by King George. And all, all. Yes, that can all be true. And it can also be true, because it is, that they were these individuals who owned people, mm-hmm. right, and, and, and participated in the transatlantic slave trade and created a system that upheld their right to do so, their right as they saw it. But it can also be true that to reach, truly reach, what those values that they articulate in these documents are about, to really reach that, we have to confront our history, we have to confront our present, and that is how we begin to create a new future. And this country is in a great, it is beyond a tug of war. There is a social and moral civil war, and increasingly we see that it's becoming a political one. And circling back to January 6th, there are some who want there to be an actual 
civil war. And whatever they can do to foment and make that mm-hmm. happen, they will. And the only question to this country is, will you allow them to do so or not? And I think there are too many people who are on the sidelines. There are too many people who are apathetic. There are a lot of people who are just worn out dealing with it, and I get that, mm-hmm. especially if you're on the receiving end of the oppression, yeah. right? But I think this country is looking itself in the mirror. It does not like what it sees, but rather than change what it sees, it'd rather punch the mirror and blame everybody else instead of saying, oh, I've got this earring on. I don't like it. I can just take it off. We don't want to do that because then we don't know who we are anymore. And there's an alignment of values that has to happen. And values is, I know, a little bit of a tricky term, but identity, who the fuck are we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who, who, who the fuck are we as a country right now? And that's the great question, and I don't think that we have an answer. That, that is the battle. That is the battle. The voter apathy thing is what drives me insane right now. You know, think about how few people recognize that are currently apathetic and say, I don't participate in the system. How few of them realize the power that they hold. That 1% of those people who have never voted before, if they vote in next year's election. Well, I'm I'm, going to throw something else out to you. I'll throw something else out Mm -hmm. to you. And two opinions that won't be very popular. One, I think that particularly black voters are especially fucking tired of feeling like we've got to carry this country in some ways. Mm -hmm. 2016, 18, 2020, 2022, we see the ways in which black voters and in particular black women stepped up, right? That is controversial for some because they don't like that uncomfortable truth. There's another uncomfortable truth. That 1% that you talk about, yes, it could just be that we get more people voting who are already registered to vote, or we register more voters, that could certainly be a sea change in this country. But there's another group who has consistently, we talk about people voting against their own interests, but there's a group of people in this country that have consistently, and I don't mean in recent elections, I mean for many decades, consistently voted their race, who have consistently voted white supremacy, consistently voted proximity to power, Mm -hmm. and if just 1% of them would vote differently and in their own best interest and in the best interests of others who are oppressed in ways that they have been in many ways still are, and that's white women, and they won't do it. They won't do it. I, I can't tell you the number of times after election, after election, after election, where we see the numbers and greater than 50% of white women, because even after Trump was impeached the first time, nearly destroyed this country. But let me side over here just in case. So anyway. Call it what it is, because there's, after the election, the numbers came out, there were times where I was like, I'm so angry to be like included with you all. And I know that there were times where I've walked around and there had been people who looked at me post-election and gone like, wonder if you were one of them. And I don't blame them. Right. I don't blame them. <laughs> right. That's okay. I will, I will take that and I will live with that energy. That's fine because. That's ultimately a small price to pay. It's too. reality. And. Yep. <sighs> but it doesn't erase those who like yourself, who, who, who do have a, a much more elevated, I would say in a much more enlightened you know, set of politics and who get it. But it does mean that the conversations aren't happening the way they need to. And it does mean that also the conversations aren't happening amongst white women like myself with white women like them. Because I... And and that's what I'm getting at. That's what needs to happen. Going back to the... We don't... We're tired of fighting and pushing back. A lot of us have disconnected from our families. A lot of us have just stopped talking about politics with our families. I, I haven't. I still am texting my mom all the time, like, what do you think about what's going on in the legislature with stuff with trans rights and them trying to take these things away? And I let her know I went to the Capitol last Wednesday and what I was protesting against. She was just like, oh, okay, was it, was it safe? Are you okay? Like, but she also won't get deeper into it sometimes unless I really push because she does the nice yes. white lady thing and she doesn't want to like push back. Whereas my aunt and I are like the raging liberals in the family. And 
she and I are on the text Love chain the complaining about everything that's going on. <laughs> and my mom's just like, crickets, cricket. Because for a lot of people, it, it is uncomfortable, and I get that. But is your comfort worth somebody's, uh, you know, freedom? Yeah. I will forever make okay. my parents uncomfortable with my thoughts, beliefs, um, everything that I need to put in front of their face. I am now forever going to just make them uncomfortable rather than stay silent. I'm going to send them articles. So that leads me to a question that I have for okay. you. This could be our Ask Coach Kristen Anything segment. Perfect. Okay, oh, there's the a segment. Show. Let me be quiet. I'll just sit on my hands. So, no, you, no, you do your thing. You, you probably have a whole lead into that, and here I am jumping the, jumping the shark. <laughs> do it. It's about that time. Okay. Given some of the things that you just shared about your, your marriage, what, what prompted you to not just engage with this work? I don't feel like you're just like, oh, this is, this is the thing to do because it'll make my parents unhappy or I can be rebellious, if you will. Or what was the moment, was it the 9-11 experience? What was the moment at which you came face to face with yourself and you decided I have a role to play here. I think there were definitely uh, moments of momentum, you know, where mm -hmm. it's like, oh, this really pushed me like in, think about like a, a pool table, you know, that, that thing that just kind of like knocks you off this way. And then the other thing knocks you off that way. And then finally you hit the pocket. I feel like that's mm -hmm. kind of how it's been a little bit more for me. 9-11 um, was definitely a heavy, heavy influence. My aunt also married a Jewish man when I was in high school, and I didn't know much about Judaism up until that point, but then being around mostly Baptist, I went to a Southern Baptist church, being around a lot of um, white Christian boys who like to tell really terrible jokes, and hearing mm. those things, going like, wait a second, you can't just say that about people that I love. Like, that's not right. Like, we don't, we shouldn't be telling those kinds of jokes. Um hearing a Baptist minister tell me that Jewish people were going to hell because they didn't believe in, you know, Jesus being the way, the truth and the light and all that stuff. And I mm -hmm. stood up and said, this is bullshit and walked out of my youth group that night. Um, and then really getting into this work as an adult mm. and it just really hitting hard. This was pre 2020. This is in like 2017, 2018. And as I'm, doing all this reading and I'm also reading about how race plays into these things. And again, getting this reaffirmation of some of the stuff, reading about Margaret Sanger and eugenics and reading about the start of gynecology and how they were doing, Oof. you know, things on black women without anesthetic. Yep. It's just, yep. it's so hard to actually read history to me and then see history happening in front of you and to not, speak up. I do, maybe it's my neurodivergency. I have a very strong sense of justice. Always have. Well, as a, as a fellow neurodivergent, I, I, I get that. I don't know why we have that streak, but we do. It, and it runs deep. I've, I've noticed that with everybody I know who's any kind of neurodivergent, especially if you're ADHD or mm -hmm. uh, on yeah. autism spectrum. Sure. One of my favorite things to scream at protests is that ain't right. <laughs> that's, that's the thing that gets me so often is I don't understand how people can't also have that strong sense of justice and understanding because it is the, if they're coming for those people, if they have the power to come for those people, what's to stop them from coming? Yeah, how long do you think you're safe? Yes. Yes, Kristen. Yes. Yeah. So. It's mind blowing. If I guess on a certain level, that's what it, what it is. I mean, people feel like if I, if I'm close enough. And it can happen in a lot of contexts, not just around race, for sure. But if I'm close enough to where I see or where it may actually be the seat of power, I may be saved. I may be um, safe here. But the truth of the matter is, and history has borne this out over and over and over and over again. No, you are not, You're not safe. safe. You're not safe. Your proximity to power is so relative and it can shift at any time. And if the state has enough power, anyone has enough power to give you that safety, to, to grant you the safety, they also have the power to revoke it. Absolutely. And at particular time we are seeing, and I'll make this my last comment, I know we're over time, but I, 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 in the ways that we're seeing government, again, 
not the first time, again being weaponized against the other. And it used to be that it would happen, it seemed to me, with some sort of pretense or pretext to it. Now those efforts are so thinly, it's just like, yeah, it's just in front of your face. Like, because this is our thing. Like, we get to be the deciders. And so if you don't like it too bad, we're going to weaponize the lovers of government against you. And to think that there have been 430 pieces of legislation, just... The deep breath in. I, I, right? Like, Anti-trans. Anti yeah. Yeah, it's craziness. It's insane. But that's where we are. And it, I have... As someone who has studied political science, and I feel like it's been my whole life because at first it was through the lens of my dad and the things that he had to say. He's always been a student of political science. My family has always been heavily involved in Missouri politics. My grandpa ran for office once. My aunt currently works for a Missouri Republican state legislator. My okay. family's been in politics for a long time in Missouri. I actually feel a sense of I have like some work to do to make up for it because my grandfather helped introduce the pachyderm club into mid-missouri so really um wow. yeah so sorry my, my grandpa helped turn <laughs> yeah. mid-missouri from solidly blue to red and i i, I feel solidly that red on my right shoulders that. honestly like i do i don't feel like i'm personally responsible but i do feel like no. i have a weight on my shoulder to do some work to shift it. This, um, wow. Again, they don't understand the slippery slope. These are people who don't understand the way that policy works. Again, any state that has the power to ban these things has the state to also then force things that goes either way. A state that can ban you know abortions can then force abortions because they can decide who deserves to be pregnant at that point. They don't I think that I, I think that they do see how policy can impact lives and shift culture. But what I think is to, to the point I think you're getting at and you correct me if I'm wrong, but what I think is that they just don't believe that it'll be used against them yes. in those ways. And when I say they, like the people in power, they get it. The people voting for oh, them. Oh, absolutely. The oh. people voting for yeah. them, they don't understand it. No. At all. No. Because they, they feel like, well, we're we're protected because they're doing this for us against these other people. But it's like, oh no, honey, you don't understand. You're next. What's what's that? And again, all these colloquial expressions and euphemisms and metaphors rolling around in my brain. But uh, the one about the axe handle, I'm sure you've heard that one before. Oh, um but, yes. And all the trees in the forest supported the axe because the handle was made of wood. They thought, oh, well, you're one of us. We're, we're, we're safe. Until the axe was wielded against them, and then they too were chopped down. There is no safety when people are allowed to, as you're rightly describing, basically run amok with the levers of power, with policy, with legislation that you think can only be used against these other people because that's weird, or that's over there, and it shouldn't be. But your day is coming. Absolutely. Sadly. Sadly. In the meantime, it's up to us to create spaces where people can find solace, they can find peace, yes. they can find community, and they can find support. And that's exactly what you're providing the community. Well, thank you. I'm certainly trying. It is uh, difficult work at times, and I quit every day. Um, the last thing I would tell you is that I stood up at our 2018-2019 Blackout Empowerment Summit and we had brought, I think it was 2019, we brought in Dominique Jackson, who was from this wonderful television show Pose and so many other things. She's an author and just an all around beautiful person, completely the antithesis of her Emmy nominated character on that show. And I told the story of my grandmother calling me one day. She said, I've been trying to reach you. I just haven't, she calls it her overactive grandmother gland. And I knew I needed to check in on you. She was right because I was just like, fuck all this. And I said, well, you know, Nana, which is a Swahili word for Mother Earth. And uh, I said, Nana, I'm just going to quit. And much to my surprise, Kristen, my grandmother said, well, then quit. Quit. <laughs> quit. And I was, way, I, I was floored. And then she filled the silence by adding, but just call me tomorrow when you start back up again. 
And so I want to say to the other activists, to the other leaders, to the other organizers, to the person who's trying in whatever ways you're trying to make a difference, and if you feel discouraged and you feel like giving up and you feel like your work is not making a difference and your voice is not being heard, step back if you need to, sit down and rest if you need to. Stop if you need to. But don't give up. Keep pushing. It is making a difference. I'll go back to what I said earlier to quote Dr. King, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, and the work you're doing matters. You matter, and we will see change. Whenever it comes, we will see change. Thank you for having me on your podcast today, Chris, and I'm really excited. Typically, I do interviews, and they want... It's very structured. I, I like this free flow, and this was great. Not that it wasn't structured; it clearly was. But I just I appreciate the space you create, and thank you for. Thank what you. you. Do. I I forgive you for making me cry at the end there too. But <laughs> did I? I'm so sorry. To do that. <laughs> That's okay. That's, I so appreciate your time today, and I didn't ask some of the questions I intended to, but I appreciate where this conversation went because it was just real and it was honest, and I think it much needed, especially for some of the people out there who are going to be listening to this. Well, that makes me feel very good. I hope that there's some benefit. And if I can ever be of help to the work that you're doing in any way, please reach out and let me know. 100%. Same. Same to you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Keep Them Coming with Open the Doors Coaching. Please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast and check the show notes for stuff we talked about during the episode. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Clubhouse, and TikTok, but visit my website if you want more information about me and my coaching services. You can join my safe for work or not safe for work email list, which I call the dirty bird. If you want less censored content about sex and relationships and want to know what I'm up to, please subscribe to that list. Send me an email, Kristen at Open the Doors Coaching, if you have a question, want to book a session, or want more information on my upcoming workshops. My theme song is original music by M. Kusa. Until next time.